Hi, everyone. This is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing and debating whatever comes up in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Can. The format of this podcast is a light catch-up at the start, followed by two main items of news, one picked by you and one picked by myself. You didn't even preface the fact this is the first time we're going live. I admire you for that. I said, do you want to go straight into the intro? And you said yes. Well, I just thought that maybe you'd have a little bit back and forth, but... Having said that, yeah, it's our first time live. So with that as a caveat, because if you listen to making it up on the regular, it will sound far more intelligent than this. I mean, we've been told by observers that the live version and our edited version really don't sound that different. Really? That's what they think. Anyways. Oh, wait. Yeah, this is unedited. My part of the intro now. And as you can tell, I'm reading this because usually people don't know I'm reading this. So people know that you're reading it. You think so? Okay. Because I All write right, the script, and then you like mess my voice up the changes. Every my time. voice changes. Right. What is the premise behind making it up? We pick our topics from the making briefing, which is an email we send out twice a week filled with current news, interesting links, and more analysis of see mess it up. More analysis of culture. I'm making it up. We talk through the things that we're most interested in and try to come to some sort of conclusion on the state of culture, media, tech, food, ever, food, food, ever, food, whatever it may be in our modern times. Okay. So if you are a regular listener to making it up, then you know what making is. But yes, for the Hong Kong community radio audience, if you don't know what making is. So Macon is a publication, a community, a media company that's focused on creative culture. So what's creative culture, music, fashion, art, design, everything that's sort of in that world of people creating things, right? Creators. And one thing that we really strive for is just creative accountability. I think that in this current point in time where there's a lot of things being put out in this world, are you holding people accountable? Is there a reason why something exists? Mm. And it's also a celebration of creative culture. Like there's a lot of negative shit out there. So how do we spin it in a way that's more positive? I wouldn't say spin. How do we focus and highlight the positive See, stuff? Sharice, keeping me accountable for my words. <laughs> you know, you did a lot better that time than the time you had to do this in London. Oh, that was the worst. So you've improved. Yes. I had vastly. To, I had to introduce Macon once live and I was like so nervous. Would we ever do this podcast live in front of a real audience sitting yeah. in front of us? Yeah, I would. We're gonna, we're gonna have to actually memorize. You guys are guinea pigs. We're gonna have to actually memorize our script for yes. that one. I, I'm, we agreed to introduce each other because yeah. we're so bad at introducing ourselves. Yes. So Eugene is a former editorial director from Hypebeast. He is currently a co-founder of Macon. You've been doing a whole bunch of different things. I don't know what to say. Like, I want to mention the crypto thing, but I don't know if I should. So that's unedited. Um, You're right. You, I guess if I had to talk you up, I would say that you have been working really hard for the past 15 years on being authentic in editorial decisions as much as possible. I'm trying to do the math there. What does 15 years look like? Yeah, I guess that's about right. 15 years. That would put me at like 19. Yeah. So, Sharice, you ready for me to give you a glowing review? I'm really not. So, Sharice and I, we started working together at Hypebeast and... At the time, I think what was most interesting about working with Sharice was just 
a very sort of strong point of view. For example, if you came up to her and like, Sharice, I don't think that your design and her background is as, as a designer, graphic designer, web yeah. designer. If you came to her and were like, I don't really like this or like, I think it should be like this. She would actually push back and be like, well, I think this is why it should be like this. And I think that's something that's very rare for someone that's necessarily, you know, that's someone that's younger, um, maybe even to that's, a degree. What? I was going to say that's enough. I can't no. take it anymore. Well, anyways, so fast forward. Sharice, as I mentioned, background is in design. I, one thing I recognized was like, hey, how can you turn that sort of innate curiosity into someone that's more editorially focused, which is kind of what she does now. She does a bit of everything, as does a lot of people. For people who are regular listeners, we usually spend the first 10 to 15 minutes just ribbing each other and talking about whatever comes to mind. And the most yeah. pertinent subject, which we didn't get into because we saved it for this, is is it rude to talk in a full elevator? It is not rude. It is definitely If rude. I have something to say. It is definitely If I'm rude. yelling, yeah, maybe. You I were don't... talking across another guy. He was on his phone. We were on the lift on the way here, elevator. leaving the office. We were on the elevator coming down from the office. No, it's not rude. And then all these people got on, 10 other people, and there was a man standing in between Eugene and I, and then he just like shouts across from him. Oh, I wasn't shouting, but that guy was deeply entrenched in his phone. He was like, right, I say it's nobody else on the lift. Was Do talking. you think there's one person that can solve this? Gavin, is it, is it rude to talk in an elevator full of people? Exactly. Oh, exactly. I, I feel knew betrayed. It. Exactly. Thank you, Gavin. I feel betrayed. I mean, yeah. okay. Why do you think it's rude? Because it's, it's a, a tight small, con- yeah, because it's a small space and. Is it rude to talk in the subway? People can't escape from you. They're stuck on the elevator. I think that's like, anyways. Did you see the sketch in the Slack about the voice activated elevator? Yes, I did. It's a joke. So we were discussing AI in the Make-In Slack community. Um, Lots of intriguing topics floating around there. And then this guy shared this YouTube sketch of a elevator in Scotland that is voice activated. And so the bit is that the elevator doesn't understand Because, you know, voice activated things services right now they cannot understand heavy accents they only really understand the basic accents whether it's north american english maybe just basic british english or like a standard global yes. unaccented english yeah. which i guess to even take a step back the reason why we're having this discussion is how will you see the evolution of ai for maybe underrepresented groups because yeah. obviously AI is driven by data. Yeah. And if you don't have the data set there, how are you going to improve upon the offering or the service? Yeah, we were talking about how in a serious manner, people with heavy accents or who speak dialects or who just cannot pronounce things as clearly might get left behind as technology yeah. increasingly heads towards being vocally driven. To that point, I did read something, an article that said that in general, the big, the big sort of interest around shopping and voice-activated shopping was supposed to be this new massive new revenue stream. But the reality of the situation is that when you don't have the ability to see a product and visualize it, your inclination to buy something reduces. Like you might try it right. as a gimmick, but you know they counted things like, oh, you know what? Well, what if you order the wrong size? You can't see it. Or you just want to have that sort of like closed loop where I can see it and then I buy it. 
I feel voice activated shopping would only work for commodities for, and things that you know you want. Yeah, and for no discovery. There's probably no, no discovery. discovery. It's yeah. about repurchasing things that you already have used. Yeah. It could be really useful. Like you're in the kitchen and like oh, I really want cookies. And I want like, like those that. Chips Ahoy cookies. Yeah, those aren't very good, but okay. <laughs> what, what, what cookies would you order then? Um, the Pepper Ridge Farm ones. You see, when I was growing up, they didn't have that bougie right. ass shit. All right. I did have a question for you yeah. for this banter. So we're on episode 56. Yeah. There's, for new listeners, there's 55 episodes in the archive. Did What's you ever one? think that we were going to get this far? Yeah. You know, I just, I knew from the beginning that there was something that you could repeat oh my goodness i don't know man don't you ever think we're gonna run out of things to say no because the world doesn't stop think about it if our show is based around what is happening in the world then in general there's always gonna be something but i think it also like the way this show works is that it also requires us to have evolving points of view i mean are you magically going to devolve and just start accepting everything for what it is and lose that sort of sense of analysis that is a question if anything you become more stern i would say as you get older you get more opinion yeah I would say. well yeah you get more static you become more set mm, yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah 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 which would mean that we would become boring because we would just repeat the same mm, opinions i have thought about that actually in, gen- in general like just if you fall within that sort of uh, that rut but then there's also certain things where you encounter new situations and the fact that you want to learn more about it, despite the fact that you don't have that knowledge base, that inherently will drive you forward, I think. But do you think people... That's kind of the premise of this, right? Do like, you think people listen to us for an evolution in our thoughts or do they listen to us because it's like comforting to hear us express approximately the same thing? I would like to think anyways that you're listening and you're tuning in because you want to hear a range of vantage points but also it's like maybe forcing you to kind of have a point of view on your own mm. right whether whether you think it's a little bit of mine or a little bit of Sharice's or an entirely different and you disagree with both of us I think it's important to have a different point of view which ironically enough is part of my subject today but before we get into it let's maybe talk about some of the stories we published yeah sure um so this week we put out the third installment of our Bibora Gore-Tex series yeah. which revolved around a series of interviews we did in Paris during fashion week while the Bibora um, mobile showcase was up yeah. and the one that just went up was with Mr. Bailey and if you're not familiar with any of those Gore-Tex being the technical brand that does waterproof breathable fabrics uh, by Bora is a really cool brand out of Amsterdam done by our friend Bora do you know how to pronounce his last Bora. name? Akerstad. Oh, good job. Anyways, I've heard enough. Uh, he does some really cool stuff around circular knits. So what that means is no. when he knits something, there's like structure and there's texture to it. So he can make things that have some sort of shape to it rather oh. than just like being heavy in the drapes. So he partnered with Gore-Tex to create technical apparel yeah. in the most recent His, his stuff is usually technical collection. to begin with. Okay. Yeah. But more so, would you say? Mm, I mean, Gore-Tex, yeah, it probably adds another layer. Mm. Yeah. And then yesterday we put out a story presented with Neocha in partnership with Neocha, which is a... Um, like creative agency. Creative agency and magazine yeah. and online publication as well. Facing and Shanghai. the story is about Michelle Aboro opening a boxing academy in China that 
is actually focused on helping underprivileged kids be able to get, get into fitness. It's yeah. pretty cool. Which is interesting because I think there's a lack of that in China. And yeah. And it's just like that culture in general. But it's interesting that boxing as well, it's an equipment sport. I mean, I suppose you can yeah, fight you outside, but it, if you do it properly, you need a venue. It's yeah. not like footy where you just need a ball. Yeah. Right. So it is making something accessible that otherwise would not be. Yeah. And then tomorrow, um, my pet story is going out about Johnny Hallman, who is the founder of this app made for freelancers called Cushion. Yeah. Um, and it was just important to me because this app has been significant to Honestly, my life. I think it's going to be very important going forward on the basis of how the whole world is basically turning into a freelancer economy. Yeah. So like a stat that I make in it is that by 2027, over half of the U.S. workforce is going to be freelancing. Yeah. Which is interesting because there's two reasons behind that. Like both sides have a point of view on why it's ideal. Like freelancers want freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep, and yep. on the flip side, if you're a company not having somebody on the books and you have to pay their health care, et cetera. Yeah. That's also helpful. Yeah, yeah. So there's a nice sort of big overlapping circle there between both parties. There is, but obviously there are some things that both sides have to navigate with the change in the situation. Like companies not having a certainty of the freelancer situation and yeah. wanting employees that are long-term invested. And yeah. then for freelancers, you know, Johnny talks about it, like healthcare and taxes, like these are difficulties yeah. you have to navigate. I would say that in general, from our point of view with Macon, and this is something we talk about a lot at Macon is just like the, the realities of running sort of a creative business is that freelancers allow you a certain sense of scale on demand. Mm. So like if a new project comes in, yeah. You know, you don't have to ensure that you have that whole team set up internally. It's about reaching out and be, hey, I need two photographers, I need uh, a director, I need three cameras, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So that's something that has generally been helpful. Do you want to get started? Yeah, let's get started. You know, I realized that we weirdly use that as like our transition. Yeah, we have a, we have a lot of like cues. The banter to subject is always me asking. My subject for this week is how the West became so self-obsessed. And the impetus for this is that Sean Illing of The Vox spoke with Will Storr, who published a new book on the subject. Um, the book is called Selfie, How We Became So Self-Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us. So I'm just going to give a bit of um, background on this. The myth that Will Storr is debunking is that the West has only recently become narcissistic um, because it's really trendy nowadays to say, oh, social media and smartphones and all the technological devices have made people more self-obsessed. And Will Storr says, no, actually the history of being narcissistic in the West goes all the way back to like geographic history. Like when he even re references, you know, Greek islands being um, requiring people to become olive oil makers and that's why they became more interested in the self vs eastern cultures where you know you had to be in like a farming community in order to secede so will store talks to sean illing about the good benefits of western culture being focused on the individual and also the bad so for example a good one is that if you grew up immersed in Western culture, you're more likely to believe like I can do anything. I can be anyone. But on the flip side, you if you don't secede, that is very dangerous. 
because you think you're to blame. Do you agree so far? I don't know yeah, by I the agree. way you're looking I at agree. me. No, yeah. no, no, I agree. So like if on one hand, as a kid, you'll be like, oh, I can be an astronaut. I can be the president of the States. But if you don't make those goals, then you'll be like, I'm a total failure. I don't deserve to live. Like that's a possibility is what he talks about. Whether in where he's in Eastern culture, you are more likely to see like how everything around you has affected you, which is something that I thought you would, would resonate with you because you're all about context. There, there's one thing that I always reference, you know, the the Maslow's hierarchy of like social needs. hierarchy. Yeah, hierarchy of needs, sorry. And it's really interesting to see the difference between how it's perceived in the Western world in more individualistic societies versus the Eastern world that are more collectivist. Mm. So ultimately at the very top of the pyramid is on the Western side, it's more like self-actualization and like just knowing what your purpose is and like in many ways about you yourself versus on the collectivist slash sort of Asian side, which is about your place and your respect and how you're viewed internally or externally by the community. So it's interesting because they're very different. They're on opposite sides of the spectrum. So I look at it and I'm like, I'm not that surprised. And I'm just curious, is there more to contextually to, to this? Well, I mean, I think one thing that he's mainly arguing against is this idea that Western culture now is more obsessed than they used to be. He's saying that it's not that human nature has changed as a result of technology, but that technology has just amplified what is already natural to us. So like Instagram did not make people more self-obsessed. It's that Instagram has just revealed the extent of human and nature. facilitated it and everything. Do you agree? Yeah. It's basically, yeah, as you mentioned, amplified and it's pushed people to basically put a metric on everything. Right, like we've always talked about this. If you've listened to this show before, we've talked at length about what role social media plays and how it potentially affects, you know, your well-being or your sense of self-worth, which I think is the underlying message yeah. here is like self-worth is so very much tied to like the success of it and its performance. I see where store is coming from that it's not we're a more self-obsessed generation than the generation before us. It's just that we have the ability to show it. But I do think that if you're young and you have exposure to these things, it's harder to rectify. Like, sure, maybe it's something innate in us to be focused on ourselves, but because of the tools that are available, it's something harder that as you grow older, you might be able to fix that you'll be able to correct. Yeah, and I think that inherently the belief is not bad, but the reality is what becomes a challenge, right? Because if you are able to kind of adopt this mentality, I mean, it can unlock a lot of great things. Something else that Store emphasized that I kind of wanted to push back against was Store really saying that Western culture is like this, Eastern culture is like that. But then for you and me, we're both a mix of these two cultures. So how does that affect us? Well, when you were growing up, did you ever embody a more sort of Western approach? And like, I can do anything. I can be an astronaut. I can be the president of the United States or whatever. That's what they always say. Uh, I mean, that's what kids are, are generally 
sort of following in terms of narrative, right? The thing is that I went to a school in Hong Kong that was American system, but was still located in Hong Kong. So I do feel like it's hard for me to like pull apart, you know, what parts of my upbringing were quote unquote Western and what parts were Eastern because it's such a combination. So I I don't know. I just feel like I, I believe that he's correct in terms of the history of things like tracing back but I don't know if it's going to be true continuously going on because everything is so mixed nowadays people grow up all over the place or moving around I think when I I was growing up I never really had that western mindset and it's interesting because my I wouldn't say my parents were inherently rooted in sort of this Asian parenting philosophy like I pretty much had free reign to kind of figure out what I wanted to do and pursue what I wanted to do. Both sides have the sort of push towards us to be successful. You know, your parents on the on the Asian side, like, yeah, you need to be successful. And then likewise, on the other side, there's still that pressure, right? So it's not, in, it's not that different, I would say. But what I think is different is, is there the pressure of family in general is a little bit more internal right like the pressure your parents on you versus the pressure external of the whole world actually maybe that's not even true maybe like we're both under the microscope regardless of whether you're from an eastern perspective or a western perspective because if you if you're not a success like you're gonna be right. I see what you're saying because in if you dissect in it, traditional in traditional Eastern culture, even though you might not blame yourself for not succeeding, you will feel like you've let down your family. Like exactly. that's the very traditional mentality. Exactly. I, I was actually just seeing on Twitter about this um, like second generation African American immigrant. I think like her family immigrated from Africa and she was saying how she knows that her mom is disappointed in her for not getting married yet. Yeah. And Everyone, so, it's the same. It's actually not that different. So even though she might not have that sensation that, oh, I'm a failure for not doing this with certain cultures, it's going to be, I let a greater number of people down. What was the, what was the exact title of this? Of his piece, book? Or this piece in general, the article or however you named it. How the West became so self-obsessed. But is this is it really self-obsession or is it self-obsession to be viewed in a certain context? It's not really I wouldn't I think self-obsession is a little bit clickbaity because to say it that is I think it's like self-centeredness. But the self-centeredness is actually you're doing things not because you want to do it, you're doing things because you want validation to everyone else. Do you not understand what I'm saying? Oh, I see what you so mean. I see what you mean. But that's still self-centeredness. It's self-centeredness. Like but the, 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 the pressure is not coming from you yourself to want no, to No, but it is, it's, it's your desire for validation. Because the validation is from the outside, though. I know that the desire is ex- external, but it still winds up being focused on yourself. But think about it. If you remove the external pressure... Okay, but... Okay. What I is like the, where this is going. What is it... Fine, I'll let you finish. No, I was going to say, like, at the end of the day, it's external pressures that are forcing us to behave a certain way. So, in the, it's just that the metric and the the point of interest is slightly different. So, for example, in an Asian context, to be successful means, oh, I make money and I'm a doctor and I'm like a white collar person. Maybe in the Western world, it's like I have success in a different capacity. It's still success. 
right? It's just I get what you're saying. I think what, and you're also drawing the similarity between like external pressures creating the idea of success in both cases. At the end of the day, it's the same but shit. One is external pressures yeah. on you and how you view yourself, and one is your role in society. That's yeah. what I think of. I'm pointing at you as to represent Western in this example. Yeah. I was going to say, I looked up the definition of narcissist for this and it's this great need for self-validation and then you just go out and like do whatever possible to get it. Yeah. And I, my example of a, did you watch The Incredibles? Yeah. This is what I was going to, oh man, do you remember the bad guy? Uh, no. Never mind. That was my example for a narcissist, but that didn't really, what about Michael Scott from The Office? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Found one that works with you. Yeah, actually, and then I wanted to ask you something. Store suggests is that if you can understand that people are affected more by their surroundings, you become more compassionate. And I was wondering if that's true for yourself. Like, if you are, if you remind yourself, "Hey, I don't know the family he grew up in," do you become more forgiving of that person's when you flaws? don't know his family? When yeah, you do know his when family. you don't know. No, Why but I think it's when you do understand the context but I think it's it's not that easy it's like so when you don't do you not ever feel like oh I don't know the background he grew up in so maybe I should like overlook this thing about them yeah 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 I think that, that that's what I was getting at like in general not knowing someone's background doesn't doesn't give them a pass but you're already thinking like generally speaking two things cross my mind when I encounter some sort of deviant or negative behavior. Yeah. Whatever that means, right? Like, like deviant. there's a reason, there's a reason, deviant why, behavior. There's, there's a reason why they're doing it. And oh, what's the second one? It's like, yeah, there's a reason why they're doing it. Yeah. And secondly, like how do you kind of understand and put themselves like, I think that in general is maybe a good bad thing where if you understand that as you can see I'm skipping on the second one because I forget what it is but if you if you understand that hey there's something there that results in it then you're generally that becomes your self generated pass card for them mm. but I worry about I worry about the flip side of this like if we behave this way when we don't know about someone's background I worry about the flip side where you find out something about their background and then you make an assumption that because I know XYZ that means that I'm going to perceive of this person as believing something or like they're going to behave this way Can you because of their background Can you well like an example? no well for Will Storrs one right like if you know someone grew up in a western culture vs an eastern culture you might naturally think oh they're going to be more self-centered I think that in general, I would gen I would probably prescribe to that, but I would also utilize that as a reference point. And whether or not like I jump to conclusions, I try to stop myself from jumping to conclusions. Although, eventually, along the way of knowing somewhere. someone, you must draw some conclusions, of right? Of course, of course. But it's just like ensuring that your first gut reaction is not the one you go with, because yeah. I think that's the one thing that you always have to stop yourself is like, I'm gonna feel a certain type of way about the first time I encounter something, but having said that, how do you continually survey and collect more intelligence to form a better opinion? Mm. At the end of the day, that's, the, that's what you want to do. That's like our conclusion 80% of the time I'm making it up is get more knowledge in order to make a better decision. I guess so. Oh. It's weird because this always, it's subconsciously always 
bleeds into like the second topic. I wonder if we just naturally do that. Maybe like, we're just really good at our jobs. And we find a way to, to draw a narrative across both topics. All right. Well then, this Let's is what you it. say, moving on. Moving on. Uh, so, usually I just kind of wing these. There's a computer down here yeah, for people who Charisse can't see it. made a point of it. She's like, you better prepare for this because it's live and you don't want to look stupid. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, it's unedited. So so the way I did it was... You can look stupid if you want to. You're right. So the way I set this up and the way I did my notes was much different than usual because usually I just do point form. And this time I actually wrote them out to be read. If you even write them down. All right. So my topic is the verdict on censorship is uncertain for the world's biggest social media platforms. The topic that I chose uh, started from a New York Times article where they were kind of highlighting how different social media platforms approach the topic of censorship and how they view questionable material. So this all started in the last week or so. There's been a big push to remove slash censor the work of Infowars, a media outlet rooted in right-wing conspiracy theories published by Alex Jones. So for those unfamiliar with Alex Jones and Infowars, it's a publication known for the dissemination of fake news and conspiracy theories that started back in 1999. I think just to give you a hand here, the conspiracy theories include saying that the moon landings were staged, saying that the Sandy Hook shooting didn't happen, that um, the students in whatever school shootings happen are crisis actors. So... Keep going. Yeah, They're so, extreme, extreme conspiracy theories. Not like there are aliens out there, which yeah. isn't even that wild. So there are various arms to the media company that is InfoWars, including a website, talk shows, podcasts. And one of the big talking points was that in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, Russian bots were driving traffic to the site to help promote his agenda. Yeah. So over the course of the last week or so, Google, Facebook, Twitter, and Apple all stepped in to kind of have their own action in regards to the work of InfoWars. So previously, um, these media entities had taken down certain one, like one or two episodes from his InfoWars history, but they've never done anything really extreme or wholesale banning. And actually the player that um, started it all was Apple. Apple totally took off five of his six podcasts and they're just not available anymore at at all. So I'm not going to go through the whole list of things that have happened. Like in general, Facebook, um, they actually were pretty heavy handed relative to, I mean, they've been under a lot of scrutiny as of late for the way they approach fake news. Zuckerberg went under more fire for seeming to say that it was okay to say the Holocaust didn't happen. And so he's been kind of having to like fix that situation. So one of the things, one of the outcomes was InfoWars had one of its pages deleted, which had 1.7 million followers. Um, When you look at Google and YouTube, they've always been a bit ambiguous in regards to what is hateful content. And there's always a delicate balance that's going on with YouTube. Only a handful of his videos have been removed. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, Apple, I mentioned Apple was really hard line and they're very closed book, actually like Facebook and YouTube, they have guidelines that are public access, but Apple is just like, if we don't like it, we don't like it. Yeah. That's it. 
And Twitter has been the one that's arguably the most controversial mm-hmm. because, as always, they're generally like super hands off. Yeah, they have a super relaxed stance on censorship and banning of users. Some execs at Twitter call it air quotes. Yeah, we can. Yeah. People can actually see us the now. The free speech wing of the free speech party. So Twitter has generally been okay with a lot of questionable material such as nudity and violence. And instead of removing it, they just put a warning thing up. Yeah. You have to click okay to see it. And Twitter's Jack Dorsey suggested that the other social media platforms have gone under the control of political interests for adhering to various requests and pressure. Yeah, he sort of was casting shade on all these other media outlets and companies because he was saying like, they're being reactionary, they're making this one-off decision, they're not establishing any policies. But on the other hand, you could say you know, Twitter has almost no policy whatsoever. Which I think actually is better to not, to at least have a consistent narrative. Okay, I mean... This this is where I'm going to lead things, basically, into... I'm honestly, like, conflicted. I think the the PC thing to be... To say is, oh, you know what, like... Yeah, good on everyone else that banned what was said in general. But I think it's a precedence being set that you really need to consider. Because I think that, in general, everything with InfoWars is pretty black and white. Yeah, I mean, because InfoWars is bad. It's bad. InfoWars is... It's pretty binary, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I just right. don't. I don't see a way to defend. The only way I would possibly be able to defend Infowars is to say, you know, Alex Jones, as a not, citizen, can yeah. be allowed to say whatever he wants to say. But the reach and the kinds of harassment that he says is quite bad. Yeah, I, um, I mean, at the end of the day, all these platforms are not public services. And yeah, we shouldn't expect them to operate as such. Yeah, although we want to, right? we talk we about this them, so much. We want them to do the right thing, but I mean, no one's forcing you on Facebook or YouTube or whatever. And if you're going to be the product on their platforms, like you just kind of have to roll with the punches and just accept it for what it is. Right? Do you want to fully word your defense of Twitter, like what you like about yeah. them? They have a consistent, questionable sort of terms and conditions. Right. Like, yeah. I think that they're just everything is open game so yeah. that there's no sort of like you can't say that, hey, you know what? You're playing favorites here. Yeah. Like because YouTube, I see what you mean, because YouTube's was also weird. They said Alex Jones has had too many strikes out, Yeah, which is very confusing because then it's like, OK, well, if you know he's had too many strikes out, what were the strikes and, and how say, many yeah. were there you so, know, and what's like one over the line? And they don't spell those things out. So what I'm, what I think is is critical here is that that everything goes can be tightened up, while the other one is more challenging because it's specific and it's trying to build like a broader, more generic sort of terms and conditions. You could say though that Apple is also consistent yeah, because yeah. the App Store is very closed. They yeah. don't tell you why they accept podcasts or not. They don't tell you why they accept apps or not. Apple seems to be quite clear in what they allow and what they don't allow. Because like if you look at the App Store, you would probably agree that it's more desirable to develop for iOS because the, right. the users, but there's way more apps on the on the Android App Store, I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, I would say- more shit on them. I would say Apple is like the other side compared to Twitter in terms of media companies because Apple's yeah. just very like our policy is whatever we want, we want. Whatever we don't want, we yeah. don't want. But then like 
um, Facebook, Google, YouTube, they're stuck in this in-between where they're like, oh, we kind of want people to say whatever we want to say, but not really, Yeah. but yeah. within limitations. And then Twitter is just the wholesale, say whatever you want. Open. Yeah. yeah. So my argument is that while in this case, it's pretty binary that in general, hey, you know what, when it comes to InfoWars, info most people will agree, unless you're on the alt-right, that it's bullshit, right? <laughs> but then you start thinking about it, like, what happens Watch if, the outright trolls now come for us. Yeah, potentially. But Please don't dox us. But beyond that, what you start thinking about, too, is that what does it look like if you replace um, fake, like that type of fake news or that type of topical sensitivity with something else? Yeah. Like, let's just say... Yeah, oh, I know what you I'm, mean. Like, what happens if the next leader of one of these publications or one of these so, sorry not publications but social media platforms is like i i think we should push a, a vegan approach to or a vegan narrative yeah that's so true. that that's kind of what i think is something to be wary of and the solution i think amongst amongst all of this is like how do you create greater transparency and how you regulate things because that inherently creates a much stronger framework because you basically run it through the gauntlet of your regulatory or your your framework and you can do tests or you can do checks and balances to see hey does this work or does it not work while i want these companies to do better and to try harder at establishing these policies i do empathize because oh, yeah when you say hate speech, you have to define hate speech. And how do you define it in a way that is good enough to catch everything that you're thinking of, but also allows in the stuff that's okay? It's a really hard net to build. Starting point is like, how do you create examples of that? Versus like, hey, you can't be misogynistic, you can't be racist. Yeah. And then if you have examples of that, maybe even making, making light of examples in the past and backtesting it, being like, hey, you know what? Three years ago, this was really controversial. And under the current rules and conditions, or whatever, that would not fly. I think that is a challenging job, but if you want to make your life easier, it's like you don't want to have to rethink every single time something lands on your desk. But like, is this cool or not? Yeah. Uh, my question to you is this: is like, what do social media platforms gain by not building this framework? Oh, nothing. They gain nothing. <laughs> they need to work faster so? at establishing I mean, a framework. You have to know internally. And don't you think like we well, didn't even discuss we didn't even discuss how you feel as an employee at Facebook, Google, YouTube, Twitter, etc. Yeah. Like how do you have confidence in your leadership when you see something that you think is questionable and you don't know your leadership stance on it? That's how I feel in our much smaller organization. Yeah. Like I wouldn't want to have questions about oh, is Eugene going to run this? Like is Eugene going to support this? Yeah. Well, you can look at it as the as a positive outcome of not having a stance is that everyone's open for business that's what it comes down to right like if that's the case then it doesn't really you want to attract as many advertisers as possible because you're kind of brand agnostic in a way you know what i mean like it doesn't matter whether you're running uh an ad for milk powder or you're re running an ad for like a gun okay, company. Fine. So when you start putting parameters, it limits who you're able to, to speak with. Right. Because it cuts off some part of your audience. Can you, like, they're I'm just, sure you can, but they're like, trying to reach as many people as humanly possible. Like, if in the it world. wasn't legal to run cigarette ads, I wonder if Facebook or Google would run cigarette ads. I don't know if it's illegal, like in every country, but 
that's an example I'd use, right? Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, they probably would. Because that's the would. thing is like if someone, theoretically, advertising is not bad if it adds value to the person that's consuming the ad. I just can't imagine that you think that this is a strong stance for companies to take is the no stance one. No, no, no. I think that the consistency is what's important. Right. Maybe consistency is a byproduct of being lazy. I don't know. But I look at it as such as like, hey, at least have consistency because consistency, at least to me, it, it has more of a, a trust factor around it. Yeah. Reliable. Like, yeah, reliable. But you know what's weird is because we talked at the beginning of this about how people tune into making it up and also probably make it because we have evolution of thought and that sounds as though it's not the same thing as consistency. There's consistency in wanting to understand the topic though, right? I think that it's like on a superficial layer, we can change our minds. But I think that under on the underlying level, we've always recognized we don't know all the answers. But right? then can't companies like Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, be consistent in learning more and then changing their... They very well could be. Their net. I'm not giving them an out so much as that based on what we know and based on what we've seen, this is sort of the conclusion we're drawing. No. Yeah. One thing I, I do want to say is that what I find really fascinating is that social media obviously is a way for people to connect and there's going to be a philosophical branding of social media in that how you choose to connect with somebody will immediately define them and put them in a bucket. Like so, define that relationship, define, define that interaction, that define so, the person who chose to reach out to you via XYZ instead or of like, let's else. say I meet you on the street or I meet you at an event. Okay. Like, hey, let's, let's connect. Let's exchange Snapchat. What does that tell you? Because, <laughs> Says I'm an old person. Or what does that say if like, hey, like you meet with someone, hey, let, let me get your Facebook Messenger or right. let me get your Instagram, let me get your Twitter. Those are like the, right. the underpinnings that are, I think are slowly going to kind of evolve right. and they're going to show themselves. What do you it's ask like, for? Um, I mean, I usually just get their email, to be honest. That's me too. Email. What does that number? say about us? I think that you... I always go for email. I feel uncomfortable using social media, but unless you have to be contextual too, because it's like... I'm also really bad at checking my social media DMs. Yeah. Too oh. many DMs. Okay. Well, that's not it. <laughs> we were talking before we went on air about how we don't have push notifications on no, for, yeah. for social media. Well, so... Yeah. I think that I think that to that point, what I wanted to finish off on was the way you feel about someone giving you a hotmail will be in some ways the same as someone asking for your Facebook in a few years. Right. Yeah. You make a judgment about them. Yeah. Kind of like the first topic. Yeah. Whereas but like numbers and emails are, are agnostic, right? Mm -hmm. Well, no, that's not true. If, if, if we, if I ask you for an email I, and I'm a generation, what is it? Z? I'm like, yo, I don't even use email or like in you're in China, like no one's going to want you. Oh email. yeah. Nobody for email. So it's WeChat. It's only WeChat. You're culturally insensitive for asking for my. Well, not culturally insensitive, just like. Culturally stupid. Ignorant. Ignorant. Ignorant is the word. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, you're welcome. Funny that you talk about how our choice of companies will affect how people perceive us, but I don't think I don't see it directly related. Like I don't think the Twitter user, just because of Jack's decisions on Infowars, then doesn't use Twitter, doesn't give their Twitter handle out. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, even though I agree with 
our pre- previous conversation about like the Infowars decisions and then this one about personal usage, the two don't connect so much. But you, you, you kind of generate a sort of POV on, on what type of person someone is if they lead with that. Like in, in general, you go to every sort of... Yeah, but like that decision about them isn't, you don't think, oh, Facebook banned Infowars and that then affects your perception of someone using Facebook Messenger. I. You think that that will become more pronounced? I think it will. Because it's also like a a generational thing too, right? I don't really know if it will. I don't really think that. Because the thing is to me is like if, if someone's like, let's connect on Facebook, I assume they spend a lot of time on Facebook. And then I... Is it a logical conclusion to think like, what is the reality of the content that you generally see in Facebook? Let me ask you that. I didn't, I didn't really see it that way. Does it make sense though? If, if like, let's say hypothetically, most of the stuff you're going to see in your Facebook feed entails cat memes, um, friends updates from their kids' birthday party and or whatever. Um, and then also them ranting about work. Right. I think that is starting to create a narrative. Whereas like if it's Instagram, I'm a little bit more agnostic. Like I see sort of maybe an artistic merit around that. And if you send me something like Elo or like Arena, then that's something even even more different. Right. Got it. Got it. Um, I have to say that I don't really think of people in that way. What happens if you send, I don't even know if SoundCloud has DMs, probably not, but like that's not- Actually they do. Yeah. If someone sends you, let's connect on SoundCloud. That's yet another type of messaging. That's incredibly hipster, but okay. Yeah. I guess in a larger picture, yes, but it's not it's, it's not yet so directly connected to companies' decision to allow certain material or not. Because this is really just the start. Yeah. We're gonna see more of this. Like we're gonna see more of media companies having to make a decision on I, controversial I, I wonder, information. Yeah, I don't I don't really know the solution. I, I, two things, either they decide internally but they can't because like this is not good for business to be so heavy-handed yeah yeah um that's one way looking at it secondly unless someone forces their hand oh yeah yeah we're gonna see eventually at some point in the next few years we'll see some kind of governmental regulation i imagine that will be true yeah um any other conclusions to draw no i think that that's it for me Wow. End of our first live session. What were your thoughts on it? Um, I was way more self-conscious of how I'm sitting and my posture, but I don't think I, I don't think I corrected my posture at all. Even though it like, even though it kept crossing my mind, like, oh, I wonder if I'm sitting straight or if I'm slouching. I pretty, pretty much think I slouched the entire time. So no difference. Was it easier or harder? Yeah, actually it's probably easy. It's probably the same for you because you generally speak at a very defined pace. Whereas like when I'm back in the studio and I know I'm going to cut it, it's a lot slower. Yeah. You also, you tend to do retakes and I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So there's that. Would you do this again? At first I was dreading it, but this is not that bad. It allows you to be a little bit more personable. Like you worry less. Yeah. I make a mistake. Like I, yeah, I mean, it's more like on the fly. I don't give a shit. Which is nice. That's a good place to wind things down. You don't have the pressure of social Eugene media. Eugene doesn't give a shit about the podcast. So. No, that's not true. I don't. I, I don't know. I, I just pressure. twisted your words. No. That's what I do. Right over my head. 
All right. If you're interested in learning more about Macon and reading or listening to our stories about um, the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. You can find us anywhere on social media by searching for Macon, M-A-E-K-A-N. And a huge shout out to Gavin for setting this up, for running everything. Also, huge thanks to Elf and to HKCR and the whole community for tuning in and letting us be a part of this platform. I'm Eugene. That was so much less enthusiastic than usual. Uh, but it's okay. Okay, whatever. All right. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>